podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello and welcome to your World Cup Daily. I'm Dave Hendrick, recording at 11.30 at night with Mr. Carl Matchett, because Carl Matchett, what the fuck did we just witness today? <laughs> it feels too late in the tournament to say this, but was this the day the World Cup arrived? I, I think it may have been. Oh my God. This That's was proper crazy. World Cup football. Oh, total, total madness. It was stressful and it was roundabout and it was back and forth and it was done and then it wasn't done and it was tension and it was tempers boiling over everywhere and there were tears and tantrums and honestly should have been more red cards than there were goals overall yeah so let's get stuck into the first game Croatia won Brazil won Croatia go through 4-2 on penalties nil nil at half time a strange game in which Croatia had outplayed Brazil in the first half. The second half was fairly even, but Brazil looked like the team that would score. Croatia didn't look like scoring. Neymar, who'd stanked the place out, scores just on the verge of half time in extra time to give Brazil the 1-0 lead. And in the second half, Carl, it felt like Brazil just thought it was over. Pekovic scores for Croatia on 117 minutes. We go to penalties. Vlasic scores. Rodrigo misses. Meyer scores. Casemiro scores. Modric scores. Pedro scores. Orsic scores. And then Marquinhos hits the post. And Brazil are out. And you have to say, you can't really feel too much sorrow for them. Because... It felt like when they went one up, arrogance took hold and they just assumed it was over. Yeah, I mean, look, Croatia had one shot on target all game long and that was a massively deflected one. And you talk about Neymar stinking the place out. He was abysmal all of the game, except for that little bit where he scored, which was unbelievably good. Well, at the other end of the pitch, Bruno Pekovic, my God, I, I, I've played better than him just asleep or five-a-side or when I broke my leg or whatever. He was abysmal. He did not do a mm. thing all game except score to take his team to penalties in the World Cup, which is quite the thing, if we're being honest. Um, let's, he did create that one good chance for Brozovic. Nutmeg. I'm, I'm which, which I, how, how did that happen? I'm not convinced he meant that at all. I think he was trying to chop back inside and then it sort of... I think he was trying to shoot or something. And the second bit of touch went through, I think it was Marquinhos's legs. I mean, oh God, uh, look, Brazil should have won. Brazil had the chances and Brazil had the openings without being splendid all game long. I thought Lucas Paqueta was absolutely superb for most of the match. I thought um, Anthony, when he came on, probably had one of the best impacts I've seen from him. 
Um, there were a few players scattered across the pitch who were like really good to to quite good. And then it was only like in spells, but like they had enough of them. Like Vinny had one chance uh, left corner. There was one from Vardiol towards his own goal. There was a, a one-on-one for Neymar, another one, I think, for Richarlison after that. And Livakovic was brilliant, like stood yeah. up absolutely everything and reacted really well. Vardiol was just sensational again. Yeah. Maybe a couple of moments where things got away from him, but he always, uh, apart from the Livakovic save, always recovered his own sort of um, misjudgment or misplaced pass or anything like that. Really, really good. Croatia were controlled and had nothing at the end of it, whereas Brazil didn't really have that much control, but still created a bit of chaos and a bit, a few openings. Um, it was a bizarre game, but I have no sympathy for Brazil because they didn't do enough to make sure that they won. And I agree. I don't know if it is arrogance as such, but just an expectation that Croatia would just keep trying to huff and puff and not really do anything. Um, I think the the start from Pasalic was absolutely the right call. Uh, he, he had really good energy, really good movement in the channels, two really good low deliveries, which could have caused problems. And then later on, Orsic came on, who we'd spoken about as well. And I thought he was like the most lively attacker uh, Croatia have had throughout the whole tournament so far. Yeah. But obviously, he had, hasn't played a lot of uh, action. He only played like seven or eight minutes or something in this game as well. So lots of energy. But still, like making things happen, making the right call of when to pass and when to take people on and everything. He was very, very lively. So I can't fault Croatia for their approach because it's got them through to another semi final. But I'm still left thinking they're not that good. Like they're really well organized and they work extremely hard and they're set up to let that midfield dictate play. But the dictating play tends to not go anywhere in particular too much of the time for me to think that they are a good team all round. But it's the same thing as always. Like even we spoke about it before the tournament, Nations League, um, qualifiers, everything. They've had this trouble of not really scoring goals, but sharing all the goals around. And that's kind of what they've done throughout the tournament again. So it works for them. You can't really have too many complaints. Juranovic at right back, I thought was another really good performer for them. Uh, Brazil, like I said, no no sympathy. I, I wanted them to go through. I wanted this Brazil-Argentina um, semi-final, but they've not done enough at the end of the day. So off you go. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think Juranovic was was incredible, especially for the in the for the first yeah, seventy first minutes. Half. Yeah, first half in particular, he was just a driving force. Lovren, to his credit, did well, but it is notable that most of Brazil's chances came in his zone. Like they got inside him quite a few times. I thought Kovacic was absolutely monstrous in midfield. Um, Modric was very good. Brozovic was good, but. Like you say, there's just there's nothing at the end of it all. And I wonder if Orsic might get himself a start in the semi-final because when he came on, he looked like he had a bit more purpose. Uh, so Croatia through six World Cups, three group stage exits and three semi-finals. There are no half measures with this nation at all. Um, in news after the game, Brazil's manager has resigned, Carl. Any thoughts on that? Uh, I, I mean, I think it's a little bit reactionary, but obviously if he was going into the tournament already knowing that he was making his mind up to go or, you know, whether they won it or didn't win it, then, you know, it's fair enough. That's not something taken in the heat of the moment. I hope that's the case. Um, but, you know, he's, he's had a, a fairly decent reign in terms of Celisau's history, um, but has ultimately fallen short, didn't win the Copa. 
didn't win the World Cup. That was the, you know, the, obviously the two big things that they would have wanted. They won the um, the Olympics last year, but I mean, it doesn't really register on the. On he the won Grand the Cup Stadium. in 2019, didn't he? he? Oh yeah, sorry, the 2019 one. Yeah, it was the the, the 2021, the most recent one as well. That he lost, yeah. Um, so I mean, is it enough? Is it's probably not what he would have hoped for across that that span of time, anyway. Um, I, I don't think that it's a terrible loss, like, but I do think that he'd done enough good work uh, team building wise and having a very settled side there. But obviously, you'd be thinking now that it's not enough mm-hmm. um, to, to to make it worthwhile to stay on. So fair enough. Yeah, I think if you're the manager of Brazil and you don't win the World Cup because of the nature of Brazil, if you have two bites at it and you don't win, you're going to be considered a failure regardless of anything else. This guy won 74% of his games. He won that Copa in 2019. But because Brazil demand the World Cup, he is going to be looked at as a failure. However, he will easily walk into a good club job in Brazil tomorrow if he wants. So there's no problem there. Just on the topic of new managers, want to get your opinion on Luis de la Fuente being appointed the new Spain manager. He's worked in the Spanish underage groups uh to some success has no real track record as a club manager is this a good appointment or is this a gareth southgate type cheap appointment i don't really know to be honest because i'm not like too close in terms of what he's done um previously and obviously in the youth sides it's not something that i will keep a, a very very close eye on so it's really one that after the world cup i will take a bit of a closer look at and look into how he's been doing there, but it's it's a it's a succession appointment, isn't it? It's something that's within the Spanish uh, sort of Spanish FA setup that Refef that'll just have a a plan to continue playing similar sorts of ways you would imagine and try to bring through a few more of the the younger players, for example. And they certainly need them in a couple of areas at uh, let's say a centre back, centre forward. Those are the key ones we'd look at probably. So it's probably something they've had in mind for a while. Yeah, I think so. He he did take charge of the Olympic team in 2020, silver medal there. He won the under-21 European Championships in 2019 and the under-19 Championships in 2015. So it does look like he is uh, he has been lined up for this. Um, <clears throat> in my haste to find out more about him earlier on, I looked him up, didn't really check what I was looking at, and then got very confused to see that he died in 1972. <laughs> but that was a different Luis de la Fuente. Right. Um, so moving on then to the second game of today, this was real World Cup football. This had everything. This had madness. This had aggression. It had needle. It had things boiling over. It had a terrible referee. It had all the drama you could possibly ask for, and it had penalties. Argentina 2, Netherlands 2, Argentina true, 4-3 on penalties. Molina scores on 35 after a genius assist from Messi. Messi makes it 2 on 73 from the penalty spot after Acuna is brought down by Dumfries, and you have to think, that's it, that's game over. Voot Veghorst comes on. And in a shock to everybody, wins an aerial duel against Lissandro Martinez, who he is about 10 inches taller than, gets one back on 83. I'm begging the referee for at least 10 minutes of stoppage (laughs) time. He gives us 10 minutes of stoppage time. It takes 11 minutes of stoppage time 
but a brilliantly worked free kick. Teon Coop Miners, really quick thinking, takes it short into Veghorst, one touch out of the feet, puts it past Martinez, into extra time we go. Things got a little bit feisty in extra time, as they had been during normal time. We go to penalties after... I think the Dutch sort of settled for penalties, but we can discuss it. Into penalties, Messi, sorry, Van Dijk steps up first. You love to see your captain and best player stepping up. It's a good penalty. It's a great save by Emi Martinez. Messi scores. Steven Berghuis steps up. Again, I think it's a good penalty. It's an incredible save. Paredes scores. Miner scores. Montreal scores. Vutweghorst scores. Enzo Fernandez steps forward with the chance to win the game for Argentina, does the same stupid penalty that Marcus Rashford did in the Euros, sends it wide, Luke de Jong steps up and scores, and then a player who has had a dreadful tournament to date, Latura Martinez steps forward, big pressure, big balls time, and rattles it into the back of the net, and Argentina go through. Cue pandemonium, cue more needle, Hugh, furious Dutch players. Denzel Dumfries gets booked. Noah Lang gets booked. And then Denzel Dumfries manages to get booked again and is sent off. Carl, this was absolutely brilliant. <laughs> it was absolute mayhem. It was ridiculous. Um, I'm going to start with, with stupidity and rubbishness, right? Matteo Lahoth, I've spoken about him so many times, I'm sick of it. I think he's an absolute idiot. I cannot stand him. I know there's loads of people who like the fact he brings a bit of, I don't know what they call it, flair or whatever. To me, it is pig-headed, obstinate stupidity. He has no control of matches. He is outrageously arrogant with how he speaks to the players and reacts to the players. He never has any control when situations start getting out of hand because he's the one who's inciting so much of it in the first place with his approach. I think he's an idiot. Really, really do. Um, the number of yellow cards in this game, the red card, I mean, yeah, okay, it, there was definitely needle. There was definitely people going at it and there could have been another couple of red cards for individual actions, I would say. But the amount of yellow cards shown here and to people on the bench and to people... Uh, the staff and all the rest of it, this is him letting the game get out of hand. And that's a big part of the reason why what happened happened. Because again, it's him who's added on the 10 minutes. Absolute nonsense. There was never 10 minutes stoppage time in that game. Maybe if this was like in the first round of group stage games, you could say 10 minutes, fine. But not as the World Cup has been in the round of 16s and the quarterfinals. Absolutely no chance. But he Um, was telling the Argentine players, I'm stopping the clock here. If you're going to time waste... I am stopping the clock. So yeah, I think that's fair. In, no, it's still not in um, in proportion to how the rest of the quarters have been played out. Even in the Brazil-Croatia, Croatia's players towards the end, once they've got the, uh, the equaliser and at the end of 90 minutes, they were doing the same thing. And in a couple of the, ga- uh, the games in the round of 16, it was the same thing again. And that amount of time was not getting put on in those matches. But let's leave that aside. Even if that was absolutely fine, let's say the, the stoppage time is the most minor thing. He still has no control of those matches, no. let alone that's just in a normal occasion when he makes things worse than they are, let alone in a game which has the historical weight and the actual context of what happened in the game as this one. I think he was awful. I really do. Let's just let's focus on one moment. Leandro Paredes throws in probably the worst tackle we've seen in the competition so far. 
Not that alone it. was a yellow card. Then he fires the ball at the touch mm. bench. Yeah. That's a yellow card. That could be that, a red by itself. That should be a red. It, it should yeah. be two yellows, or the tackle itself could have been a red. Virgil van Dijk steams in and bodies him to the floor and doesn't even get booked. He body slams the fella onto the floor. Then the entire Dutch bench invades the pitch. The game is going on. The Dutch are on the pitch and he's completely lost. He doesn't have any control. And it's the players themselves that manage to sort it out. There was another moment where there was a bit of a kerfuffle in the penalty area between, was it Emmy Martinez and Luke de Jong, where Martinez came out for a cross and sort of bumped into de Jong. Yeah. And he just stood to one side, relentlessly blowing his whistle, rather than actually doing anything to stop the players coming together. This this is great, though, Carl. This reminded me of the 98 meeting between these sides that had loads of needle and bitterness and horribleness, and it's all a holdover from the 1978 World Cup final. It reminded me, without the spitting, of Netherlands versus Germany in 1990. This is what I want to see. This is proper World Cup hatred between nations. Yeah. I want war declared. <laughs> I don't think you're that far away from getting it to know it, to be fair. Look, I, this is this is what World Cup is, right? This is what it means so much to these players, to the fans. Like It was such a home game for Argentina. And I want to touch on Argentina as a team in a minute as well, aside from all this warmongering that we're doing at the minute um the occasion itself and the opportunity to get to a world cup semi-final and i am absolutely convinced the fact that brazil went out earlier added to that as well it suddenly opened up what looks like on that side of the the draw a Mm. real route to the final suddenly like croatia finalists last time fine but nobody still really sees them as like finalists capable sort of thing so either of these two teams went into this knowing oh my God, we've got a real chance to get into the World Cup final here. We've got to get through this at whatever cost. Then you add in the, you know, a bit of notoriety, the fixture and what happened in the game and, you know, the referee being an absolute shambles and all the rest of it. This was always likely to be blood and thunder from the get-go. But the more it went on, the more things happened, the more things were allowed to happen, to be honest. It just developed and developed and it was a proper brawl at times, let's be honest. And yet, it was far better quality football, I thought, than the first game. Oh, yeah. Oh, there was a real football match broke yeah, out yeah. at times in this one. Yeah, it, there, there was <laughs> in between in between stopping. In between the, the fighting. Yeah. <laughs> um, but look, look, just to touch on quickly, like Argentina, I thought were, I thought they started a bit um, stilted, let's say, in possession. And they took a little while to get used to the formation, which was a, a switch to the 3-5-2, if people didn't see that we spoke about prior to the game that they tested mm. it at the end of the Australia match, which... Looked okay, but when they conceded that free goal to Australia, again, as we mentioned, the point, they just lost everything, like completely lost their heads. It went no from composure. a tactical passing, winding down time match to utter emotion and no control. And that's exactly what happened again here. They, they had seven minutes to hold out plus injury time and a two goal lead. Yeah. And exactly the same. As soon as one went in, absolute meltdown. Like nothing happened other than yellow cards and giving away free kicks for the last what was in the end like 12 minutes of that match and it's just it speaks volumes to a obviously how much it means to argentina but b that they still lack this just complete cold-blooded ability to see out a game which 
I think still some of the very, very top sides, even at international level, if not club level, still have that. Like some of them would have just like killed stone dead that that last, well, injury time, let's say, which was, you know, 10 minutes and a little bit more in the end. Uh, it just seemed very, very inevitable Netherlands would get another goal. I will say that Tim Koopmeiners, my God, I thought he was going to plant that top corner. And then just for the little pass into Veghorst's feet, of all things. Brilliant. brilliant. Absolutely superb. Um, what I don't understand, Carol, is why in extra time, the Dutch didn't just go yeah. pure agricultural football. Yeah, they yeah. had seven, seven lads on the pitch, six, two or taller, including the goalkeeper. Argentina had two. Argentina had three lads, five, eight and shorter. Yeah. The Dutch had an enormous physical advantage in, in extra time. And I don't understand why they didn't just go entirely route one. Number one, you're keeping the ball at the other end of the pitch. And number two, Martinez is tiny and can't jump. Otamendi is old and can't really jump. And the who was the centre-back? Come on, Pazala. He's mm. old and not exactly mobile. Mm. I don't understand why when you've got Veghorst and you've got, like, I tweeted at the time, and it, look, it, it bit me a little bit, but I said, if you're throwing on Luke de Jong and Woot Weghorst, Woot Weghorst in search of goals, it does show how weak the Dutch squad is. But the one advantage they had was they're massive. Mm. They're enormous. Why not go route one, even for the last five or six minutes, throw Virgil up front, Timber and Aki are more than quick enough to hold it together at the back, sit yeah. Frankie in front of them, and pour everyone else into the box. I mean, like, I mean, person I was watching the game with sort of asked the question, you know, when they scored the two goals, why didn't they just start with those guys? Why don't you sort of take that approach from the first? And that's fair to not, I think, because it would have left them obviously very exposed. It wouldn't have had them as uh, settled in possession for the chances that they did uh, to get a bit of time on the ball and so on. But late in the game, once you've already made those changes, absolutely. Why, why get yourself back into the match and then sit off again all of a sudden and yeah. let Argentina? But... By contrast, you can still ask the same of Argentina. Why do you let yourselves be so, so emotionally affected by conceding a goal when you're yeah. still winning? You know now that you've conceded the second one and straight away you're back on the front foot. Straight away you're able to have these combinations of passes and play through the first two lines and get chances. Why don't you do that 2-1? Kill the game. You're able to. You're the, by far the better technical side at that point mm. after those changes have been made. Uh, and even then, like there's still what? Another two, maybe three, very, very near misses for, for Argentina to win it. Enzo hit the post. Yeah. Sent one just over the bar. And was there a Lautaro shot that was deflected? They hit Virgil. They hit Virgil right yeah. in the chest. Oh, yeah, that's right. Off Virgil's chest. That's right. I mean, it was honestly, this game was insanity. It was the most ridiculous one of the World Cup, even factoring in those weird permutations in the group stage very, very late on. There's two things with the Dutch here before we move on. First and foremost, at the end of the regulation time, when, when the final whistle went after the 90-plus stoppage time, Argentina have to felt like they just lost. They'd been two up, and they just conceded in the 111th minute an equaliser. That had to be a hammer blow. So starting extra time, the Dutch should have been going hell for leather at them, pummeling them. But instead, they allowed Argentina to kind of catch their breath and compose themselves and get themselves back into the right frame of mind. 
the big downside of what the Netherlands did with their substitutions, bringing on the likes of De Jong and, and Veghorst, is when it got to penalties, you really did have to feel like Argentina had a big advantage because they had far more technically gifted players that you would trust from 12 yards out than the Dutch did. Yeah, I think so. That's fair. I mean, like, even if they're not the most technical, I think there are still enough players who can hit the ball um, in the Dutch side, basically, to, to step up and take penalties and be reasonably confident about the outcome. But, you know, shootouts... I thought I thought Berghaus, Coop Miners, and De Jong all looked really nervous stepping up. Now, Coop Miners and De Jong both scored good penalties, but I thought they looked nervous. Whereas the Argies, they looked like this is normal. This is what we wanted. We're happy to be here. I would I would have put my house on Lautaro Martinez missing that penalty. I have to say, so fair play to him. Yeah, big big balls after bad tournaments so far. Let's move on. To- I, I- just before we do, I want to address one thing. And yes. that's like uh, this this photo that's been going around on social media straight after the match, which is like in the instant Mat- Lautaro Martinez has scored the, the wing penalty, it's half the Argentine team running off celebrating, the half the Argentine team running past the Netherlands players who are collapsed on the floor in agony, obviously, and celebrating in their faces. And people saying, oh, it's classless and it's, you know, it's, it's um, a horrible thing. And why is that your first impression and all the rest of it? I would say... Obviously, there's a few players in in that Argentina team, Otamendi and a couple of others, who are that way inclined anyway. But add in everything we've spoken about, the weight of history and the the rivalry between the nations and the fact that this is a you know a World Cup quarterfinal and all the rest of it, I would also say a large part of that was going to be some responses to what was said by the Netherlands group when the 2-2 went in, because there yes. is an equal amount of shit houses in that squad. Yeah. Look, I loved it. Personally, I love it. Yeah. Because I want these type of rivalries in international football. We don't have them anymore. Obviously, Argentina, Brazil, the Dutch against the the, the Germans, though those kind of things get can get a little bit heated. But I want to see more of this. I want to see real rivalries of the World Cup. It's what it's about. It's what it's about. And these teams only play each other at World Cups in big games, aside from crappy friendlies. So this is what I want to see. That's brilliant. The next time those two teams play, there's going to be a big build-up and the game will seem important, even if it's a crappy friendly. Um, let's move on then. Today, well, which people listening on Sunday, today's, uh, sorry, Saturday, today's games will be Morocco versus Portugal. Morocco, obviously, surprise toppers of a group. Came through. The round of 16 by beating Spain on penalties. Portugal, having dropped Cristiano Ronaldo last time out, demolished Switzerland 6-1. They also had topped their group. This stands to be an interesting game, Carl, and I think a lot hinges on the bravery of the Portuguese manager. Does he have it? to leave Cristiano out again. Yeah, I mean, we might as well start there. Do you think he will be? Because that is the biggest thing. I think he has to. Like, how do you drop a player who's just scored a hat-trick? Because he yeah, can't I, play anywhere else. He can, no, it's not I, like Cristiano I, can play on the wing. No, I don't think that that's, that's the, the question. I think it is... Uh, I mean, you can't drop Ramos, like you've just said. I think it would be a case of accommodating Ronaldo even more, like putting Fernandez behind Ramos and Ronaldo, something like that, and dropping Jar Felix, something like that. It would be an absolute accommodation if he comes mm. back into the team. 
He, do you know what the thing is, right? He can't really win either way unless they go on and win the competition with Cristiano sitting on the bench. Yeah. Because if he plays them and they lose, he'll get criticised. If he doesn't start them and they lose, the weird people who don't actually understand football will obliterate him. And this world, what, what World Cup football does is it draws in a lot of the casuals. So people that don't watch football a whole lot, but it's national pride. So they get themselves invested. And the one player that all the Portuguese non-football fans who will invest themselves in a World Cup will know is Cristiano. And if he plays them and they lose, he's going to get criticized by the people who know what they're talking about because... Everybody knows he's not good enough to play as a starter anymore because he doesn't offer anything off the ball. He doesn't play for the team. He plays for himself. So if you start him, you're basically starting a team of 10 and one fella who's going to just going to do his own thing and not contribute. And against a team like Morocco, who are going to fight and scratch and claw and bite for every single ball, I don't know that you can afford to be down one man's work rate. No, you absolutely can't. You also can't afford to, I don't think, take out someone who really should be flying on confidence right now, whichever one of that front three that they take out, Jean-Felix, Ramos or Fernandes, really. You can't take any of them out and put in someone who is going to be, above all else, determined to show that he should be in the team for himself reasons, not for the team reasons. Um, so I, I, I don't think that there is any kind of a win for Fernando Santos to put him back in. Uh, he's made the biggest decision, which is to do it for the first time. That's that's the thing, really. Once you've done it the first time, I think it becomes not necessarily easy, but certainly a lot more um, sort of power in your corner, let's say, mm. to, to to say, look, I'm I'm doing it at the times, which is right. We'll see about the next game. We'll see about the next game. We'll see about the next game. But this one, I think this is right, and it was last time. So you've got to you've got to back me. You've got to trust me again. So I I think he will start on the subs bench, and it'll be the same from three. Yeah, I think so. I think that's what he will do. I hope that's what he will do. It's definitely the right call. For Morocco, the big question, Carl, is fitness. Is Agard fit? Is Saiz fit? Is Bufal fit? So it looks like maybe AF, uh, AF, Naif Agard is not going to be because that's a groin injury, which... That's a huge blow. Yeah, that, that would be massive he, for them. He has been monstrous in this tournament. Yeah, um, I think it's... Uh, between him, Lucas Paqueta having such a big impact for Brazil at centre mid and maybe one or two other players, I think West Ham might be suddenly having uh, visions of what could happen in 2023. Mm. But, you know, he's he's not played too much for them yet this season and looks like he might be a little bit sidelined now. Hopefully it's, you know, media misdirection, let's say, and he is OK because he's a huge, huge part. And that partnership has been just just unbelievably good. Sice and again together. Best but, in the tournament for me. As a partnership. As a partnership, best a in the partnership, tournament thus far. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. And I think the back four as a whole yeah. has been the best in the tournament. And because people loved them so much the last time, I've done my combined 11s. I'm going to run it by you here. I'm not a big fan of Bono, so I've gone for Costa as the goalkeeper. Right. I've gone Hakimi right back, Mazraoui left back, because I'm not having Joe Canseo. And Guerrero's only had one good game. In the tournament, I'm going Diaz and Agard as the centre-backs. Obviously, this is pre-Agard getting hurt. In midfield, I'm going Bruno, Amrabat and Bernardo Silva. I think that's nicely balanced. 
And then I've got Jeff Felix, Giancarlo Ramos, and Sophie and Buffo as my front three. 6-5 to Portugal. But what I will say is the areas in which I've picked the Moroccan players, I think Portugal are much stronger than the areas in which I've picked the Portuguese players for the Moroccans. Like, I, I think Morocco's eights have done really well with their work, but I don't think they're anywhere close to the level of Bruno and Bernardo. I don't think En Naziri is... as He's a good player, and I do like him, but he's not... He doesn't have Ramos's killer instinct in front of goal. Um, whereas, you know, you look at Hakimi and, and Mizrahi, I think the, the Portuguese fullbacks are quite good. Um, Pepe is, despite being 400, still quite good at centre-back. I mean, I think uh, Pepe's so I, had a better tournament than Diaz, to be honest. He has, but if you were picking one of them to go forward with, you'd have to pick Diaz because he's 24 and Pepe's 39. Yeah. So... I think it's. I think this is a more balanced game than than people think. I think a lot of people think Portugal will just run over Morocco here because they ran over Switzerland. But I think Morocco really well organized. I really like the coach. I think he's done outstanding work. Yeah. Given he's only in the job a wet week. Yeah. I, I mean, think this one's going to be fa- fascinating. It, I mean, it really should be. Um, I mean, Portugal, if they hadn't have gone through in the manner that they did against Switzerland, you know, if they'd have gone through playing similarly to how they did in the group stage and sort of, you know, a 2-1 just about set-piece sort of win or something like that, I'd probably err towards Morocco. Um, what, what makes me change my mind on that is, one, the injuries and how much work they had to put into that Spain game to get through, and two, the fact that Portugal just looked light on their feet and full of energy and full of speed and loads and loads of um, rotation of positions and completely changed the way that they attack, really, in that last game. That's what has swung it completely in my mind now. So I think so, so much of this for Morocco relies on them having as close to a starting 11 being full strength as possible. Mm. Like, you know, we've spoken about again, let's leave him out for now because it looks like maybe he won't be. But if they were to lose, I would even say one more of that spine from, let's say, Hakimi, Saiz, Amrabat and Bufal. I think that's like 30% chance gone. Because yeah. those players are so, so key for them. Yeah, I do agree. I do agree. And we know that Amrabat is playing with pain-killing injections in his back as well, which is a bit of a concern. Yeah, I mean, it definitely will be. I mean, like Portugal definitely have the squad depth without it dropping off quite so much. But there is, especially in a World Cup and a knockout, there's so much to be said for you know, the team spirit and organisation and understanding of roles and really good partnerships. And it's not just between centre-backs, which is now obviously going to be changed, but Amrabat covering for both the full-backs going forward. It's the full-back and the, that side at eight who cover for each other and Saiz covering behind Masrawi, for example. All of these have worked really, really well for Morocco. It's very, very clear that whatever it is that uh, Walid Regragu has been doing, working on the out of possession, who covers for who is a huge, huge part of that. Working on the intercombinations when they're sort of trying to move through the thirds and who makes the run off the ball for Bufal when he's sort of coming in field and everything. All of these things are like clockwork for them. It's not like unbelievably new or fancy or anything like that. It just, they're doing it right. They're doing it works. It is at the right times. They're doing it repetitively and teams are struggling to cope with that. Um, they defend so diligently and bodies on the line and everything and Bruno hasn't made any mistakes and that's a big thing no and the the small mistakes he made in the Spain game with some of his kicking he got away with so yeah, it wasn't 
it, it didn't ham- hamper his confidence. Uh, prediction for this game? Uh, I, I, I think Portugal win it if they play, obviously, in a similar way to the way that they did, but it will absolutely not be easy for them. Um, I hope Morocco give them a really good game. I mean, Morocco have obviously made history for themselves already getting this far mm. uh, and winning the amount of games that they have done, but what an opportunity. Like, no African side in the semi-final of a World Cup and they are, you know, what, the fourth, I think, nation to get to the quarters and have the opportunity to get that far. So they will put even more than Argentina's players did bodies on the line for this game, but I think I'll go 2-1 to Portugal. Just because I agree, I think Portugal will win. But because I do want to see history made, I want to see an African team in the semi-finals. I'm going to go Morocco on penalties after a 1-1 draw. And I'm going to suggest that Cristiano misses his penalty. Moving on to the final quarterfinal. It is the big one. I think the one that a lot of people penciled in straight away is the one to watch. It is England's conquerors of mighty Iran, mighty Wales and mighty Senegal against reigning World Cup champions, France. Carol Matchett, how are you feeling about this one? Uh, Really, really intrigued, I think. England going 4-3-3 is a very brave thing, but also the right thing to do for the team setup. I think it sort of speaks volumes as to the progression of the side as a group, let's say. Um, France, I think, are still another gear to go, to be honest. If they're going to hit top form, I think there's more to come from them. Obviously, they have the the greatest and most dangerous individual at this World Cup so far on their team, but it's not just about him. I think there have been some unbelievably standout performers who haven't really been spoken about, have been a bit overlooked. I think Antoine Griezmann, again, has just been nothing short of sensational for them. I Mm. just absolutely love how he plays for France. It's so, so central to everything that they do. Um, I mean, like we know, obviously, well, you're not, I am in England, and we get the same sort of media coverage at the very least, even if it's not the, the same country. And we know that there's going to be huge, huge focus on like two or three specific people. It's going to be Bellingham because of how he's been playing and how good he is. It's going to be Carl Walker because he's up against Kylian Mbappe in that. Um, you know, Kane against Lloris, captain, captain, Tottenham, Tottenham, blah, blah, blah. But I just think that there are so many really interesting sort of one-on-ones and little duels going up against each other here. Like Maguire, considering his form, considering the season he's had, I think he's done very well for the large for the large part. But Giroud is one of those players who always seems to score um, against people who you would think would do well against them, like taller and stronger defenders who do well in like clearances and headers and aerials and the rest of it. Against like Van Dijk, for example, he always struggles against Giroud. He's that kind of player who can just... Virgil said he's his toughest opponent. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised in the slightest. He always seemed to get the better of him, even if it was just for a few moments in a game and he would punish them. Um, Adrian Rabio, another one I think has been just brilliant. Like aside from maybe the first game, I think he's been sorry. I think he's been outstanding. Yeah, he really has. Like I I think first game, Chouameni was brilliant, better than Rabio, better than most people. But Rabio since then has just been just non-stop, really, really good. Uh, And I think we mentioned after the the Senegal match, Declan Rice probably had his weakest game in that fixture. 
So how those midfielders match up against each other, it's, I think honestly think this is going to be such an intriguing tactical matchup as much as anything else. I mean, France, from a technical perspective and from a um, attacking baseline of ability, I think are marginally ahead here, but I don't think that there's a huge gap. I think it's like, you know, even if you say 60-40 sort of thing, it's a reasonable chance that England can go into the game and do something very, very positive. Um, there will be spells, obviously, where France dominate, but I think that the big thing for England, obviously, is how they react if they go behind, because we haven't seen that yet at the tournament, uh, whereas France, obviously, we have for, right from the very first game. Um, if England do go in front, though, I think it's not without the realms of possibility they do defend it well. Are we certain he's going for 3-3? Um, I mean, it's not obviously guaranteed, but most lines coming out of the uh, the camp, let's say, uh, yes. There seems to be more lines than normal coming out of the camp, is my point. Earlier. A lot earlier, yeah. Yeah, which makes me wonder, are we going to see the patented back seven I mean, that, be, that he has previously employed? Uh, um, I, I think it would be such a mistake that I think it's too obvious now that England are staying 4-3-3, because that that midfield was better balanced and with the three with Saka being one of them able to to drop in as a, a fifth or a fourth in midfield, if you like, there's there's just too much balance there to wreck. So one player that you didn't mention that I think is going to be absolutely vital tomorrow because there's been so much focus on Mbappe. So much focus. England have a plan to stop Mbappe, which sounds to me like what they're going to try and do is overload on England's left, England's right, France's left, and stop Mbappe. And what that could well do is it could leave Luke Shaw isolated mm. against Usman Dembele. And I think Usman Dembele has quietly had a very, very good tournament. And I don't fancy Luke Shaw's chances of stopping him 1v1. No, I do think that that will be marginally problematic. I think Dembele has been excellent in spells and a little bit hit and miss in others, to be honest. Um, it's I think it's quite notable that he's one of the first off most of the time. Partly probably due to managing fitness because obviously he's been in and out with hamstrings and all the rest of it. So maybe it's just that as well. Um, but even if Dembele does go one-on-one and absolutely blitz Shaw, I, I still think that the people from the second line and second attack... Do you think Slabhead Maguire is stopping Usman Dembele in, in a tight space? I mean, he might turn around in time to see him go past. That's about it. So you mentioned Rice. I think he's going to be key tomorrow. I don't think he's had a good World Cup. I think the the game against Iran was very, very easy. I thought he was awful against America and got completely overrun. He was okay against the Welsh once England went in front, but he was a non-factor in the first half. I didn't think he played well against Senegal. So I think Declan Rice needs a big performance, and he's going to be going up against Chiuameni, who's a monster, and Rabiot, who's in probably the best form he's been in in about five years, which doesn't really fill me with confidence if I was supporting England. I want to do my combined 11, but I want to do it with you. So I'm going to ask you for your pick in each position. Mm. We've got them lined up 4-3-3, and we'll see how we differ. Hugo Lloris or Jordan Pickford? Oh, God. I don't like either of these, do I? Neither Uh, do I. Larissa, I suppose. Are we going on World Cup form or just overall general? We go on. We go on what we expect from them tomorrow. All right. Um, Pickford. I've gone Larissa. 
Jules Kunde or Kyle Walker? Kunde. Rafa Varane or John Stones? Varane, just about. Day of Upa Meccano or Harry Maguire? Harry Maguire. Oh, dear. Oh, you've got that one far, far too wrong, I'm afraid, my friend. Theo Hernandez versus Luke Shaw. Now, bear in mind, you are the chairman of the Theo Fernandez fan club, and I will report this to the other members if you go wrong on this one. I'm not answering this one. You know what the answer is. It's Theo Hernandez. Jude Bellingham or Antoine Griezmann? Bellingham. I think Bellingham's going to be very, very important to the Dembele cover that we were just talking about. Aurelian Chouameni or Declan Rice? Chouameni. Adrian Rabio or Jordan Henderson? Two gold Jordan Henderson. Oh dear. You can't possibly <laughs> be serious with that. No, I'm not. It's Rabio. It's Rabio by Miles. Um, I do agree on the Bellingham one. I, I, I do think Bellingham right now is in slightly better form, even though I think Griezmann's playing really, really well. Usman Dembele or Bakayo Saka? Mm, Saka. I think this is the toughest one of all. Yeah, me too. Saka. I've I've leaned Dembele, but I have no argument with with Saka because you know I love him. Uh, Kane or Giroud? On the day, Giroud. I think this is a kind of game that Kane won't do loads in the box of, but we'll have to be very, very good for England's um, build-up play, which is actually why I've not picked Dubamakano. I think he might struggle with Kane. I have criticised Kane in the past in international tournaments where I, I feel like he's stat-padded with penalties and tap-ins. He's only got one goal in this tournament, but I would say this has been Harry, Mag- Harry Kane's best international tournament as a player by mm. a considerable margin. Yeah, I think that's fair. He was pretty dismal in the uh, Euros in the in the group stages until he started scoring off, obviously, later on. But I think his build-up play and combination play and all that has been not too bad at all, even from like very early on that first game. I think a couple of the goals he set up, one of them that moved down the right-hand side where he crossed for Sterling. Mm. That sort of period of game, he was, yeah, he was playing brilliantly at that time. So And I thought, he was only, I thought he was the only English player that came out of the US game with any real credit because he had to drop in and be the midfield as well as trying to be the centre-forward. Uh, Killing Mbappe or Phil Foden? I mean, it's not really a fair question, let's be honest. Uh, it's a f- well, Man City fans claim that Phil Foden is generational talent, so I'm going to ask you the question. You know what? Arsenal fans thought the same about Laurent Koscielny for about 20 years. So. <laughs> he had that one good year. That was about it. So you have picked Pickford, Maguire, Bellingham, and Saka. You've picked four English players. Hmm. I've only picked two. I've picked Bellingham and Kane. Hmm. But like I said, I think right wing is incredibly close. I think this is the game in which the starting 11, even though I think France have nine that would start for England, England only two that would start for France, I do think... In both cases, it's really strong with most of the players who don't get in, except for Harry Maguire, because I just think he's an absolute sack of cow manure. Um, <laughs> I want two predictions from you on this one. Yeah. I want your prediction if 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 Southgate goes with the back seven. Right. 
And I want your prediction if they go 4-3-3 and try to go toe-to-toe with this French team. Because I do wonder if going toe-to-toe with them is a mistake because France seem to want to sort of just sit in and launch Mbappe on counterattacks. Yeah, oh, they absolutely do. And I'm 100% not advocating going all out and trying to beat France at their own game or any such nonsense as this. What I want is to see from England is to keep that balance in midfield right because the protection was there for the fullbacks. The link-up play was there in the channels. There was overlapping runs from the eights. There was an intent to get people running in behind Kane on the diagonals. That's what I want to see from the 4-3-3. It's not about overcommitting and trying to be you know, better than France in attack or anything like that. It's about having sensible positional work on and off the ball, being ready for those transitions to protect it and being able to have spells in the game where you do have more possession. You are able to progress through the thirds up the pitch. If England play... 3-4-3, three, three. because whenever Southgate has played the back three, it's always been three up front. It's never 3-5-2, and that's the important mm. thing. It's if seven England at the play, back and three up front. Yeah, if England play two in central midfield against this front side, they will have about eight touches of the ball all game long, and it will be 2-0 to France at least. Mm. England will not be able to break out of that um, that shape, not be able to get the wing backs high enough. The right and left side of forwards will inevitably have to drop deeper and deeper. There will just be no way out at all, and they won't get the ball. So it has to be three in midfield for that reason. If if England had played previously 3-5-2, I wouldn't have a problem with that. But it's that shape in midfield with the three, the channel runners, support for Kane running beyond him. That's what's really important here from a not just protecting against the Mbappe perspective, but protecting against Rabiot and Griezmann in particular. Yeah, I, I I think Bellingham might have forced him into playing the four three three because if you play the back three as he as he wants to do, Bellingham can't be one of the double pivot. No. You can't go Rice and Bellingham. You'll get destroyed. And I think Bellingham is the one forcing his hand. I think ideally he would like to go Rice, Phillips, and Bellingham because I think he 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 really rates Calvin Phillips and I do as well. I think he's excellent. But Phillips clearly isn't fit, so yeah. Henderson likely to start. It's a big game. It's a lot of pressure. Henderson has not been good for a couple of years and on a consistent basis. Yeah. So asking him to put together good performances back-to-back is a big ask at this point. He's going to have a lot of responsibility for helping Kyle Walker deal with that absolute alien who's yeah. playing on the left side for France. And Walker, let's not forget is only back from surgery, has started, what, two games yeah. since the start of October, and you're going to ask him to go against Kylian Mbappe. It, it smells to me like a recipe for disaster. I mean, ideally, you'd have someone in the squad who has played right back against Kylian Mbappe in, like, Champions League. It's Champions just a shame there's nobody like that around. If only if only there was that possibility. But And then anyway. maybe they could also offer you something in attack in terms of a passing ability or crossing ability, given Harry Kane is very good in the air. We'll just have to be left to wonder what might have been if such a person existed. Yeah, there's Newcastle fans somewhere that have heard me say crossing ability and are furiously shouting about Kieran Trippier. Um, What's your prediction then? England go 4-3-3. How does this game play out? I'm going extra time. I don't know if maybe just 1-1, maybe 2-2. I think there'll be a lot of back and forth in this. And I think both teams will at times look like they might run away with it just because they have little spells where they're really on top. But 
if England don't fall behind, I think this goes all the way, all the way to pens. If, if England score first, I think this goes to extra time at the very least. If France score first, I think France win 3-1. Because I think England have to oh, ha, will have to commit forward. And I think if you commit forward with Kylian Mbappe and Usman Dembele behind you, I think you're going to be in major, major trouble. So here's hoping France score first and get <laughs> themselves through. Not that I'm biased or anything. Right, we've gone exceptionally long tonight. Uh, that's Carl's punishment for making us pod at half 11. Yeah. Uh, it's actually my idea, to be fair. So, uh, Carl, this was a brilliant day of World Cup football, an absolutely brilliant day. And here's everything crossed that tomorrow is just as good because we deserve this. The last thing I want to touch on is something you mentioned to me earlier in a WhatsApp conversation that you're in the pub watching the Netherlands-Argentina game and nobody seemed to care that the game was going on. Now, your colleague, Miguel Delaney at The Independent, he has said a couple of times on his Twitter feed that, you know, he's out and about during the day, going into the fan zones, and there's nobody there. Mm. And he's been at a whole bunch of World Cups and and Euros and whatever else. And he says, this is a real first for this. And when I see people on social media, I see so many people saying, I haven't watched a minute of of it, or I've only watched... England or or I've watched an hour I watched one game people don't seem to care about this World Cup that's that's the overall feeling I get and I get the same feeling from the the atmosphere at a lot of the games the Argentina Netherlands game a great atmosphere but I've gotten that feeling throughout this World Cup is that no one really cares what's going on and, and that's a big shame yeah I mean like obviously there are going to be certain people who simply refuse and that's absolutely fine there's people who were doing it for many many good reasons let's be honest um there's there's absolutely the case that if that is your uh feeling about where it's being held and all the off-pitch stuff which has happened in the build-up to it has turned you off the idea completely i think that's fine i I really do um it's a shame that obviously some of the players and some of the the teams which have been put together have had the opportunity to not uh, sorry to play in front of these people taken away from them basically um, I can't speak for all of you know the country and all of the areas because, as I said to you in the message, that this was actually the first game, the, the Netherlands-Argentina one, the first one that I've actually been able to watch out in a sort of social setting, social environment. But what I can say is, like compared to the Euros, um, compared to the 2018 World Cup as well, leaving work, you know, late at night, late in the evening, sometimes you'd be coming out after the England games, after other games, into the streets, and people would be leaving the pub, leaving the friends' houses or wherever they've been watching, and streets would be filled with people like singing and shouting and playing things on their phones and, you know, all the Southgate songs that came out in the 2018 World Cup. There hasn't been any of that this time, none mm. whatsoever, none at all. I don't know if that is all to do with the fact of where this World Cup is and the people have obviously not got so much. I suspect there's also an element of, at least from an England perspective, the fact that all the way through this, it's been painfully evident all the way basically that England and France are going to be meeting in the quarterfinals a quarterfinal is not quite big enough to get that excited about if you think you're going to get walloped whereas I think maybe if England do go through this maybe you suddenly see a big uptick in interest and watching and all that for the semi-finals kind of thing it might be that it used to be very very much the same in Spain when I lived there to be honest um, yeah. a lot of times in like you know the group stages people wouldn't even know that Spain were playing that day but suddenly when it got to like the quarterfinals and they got past that quarterfinal for the first time in ages, all of a sudden everybody wanted to know about it. 
but either way, it's absolutely the case that it's not as full on in in sort of social environments that I have been able to see in terms of Miguel and the rest of them who are over in Qatar at the minute. Basically, the feedback is kind of that it's more like being at um, uh, an Olympic environment and tournament rather than a football one, really, because it's like a, a very, very centralized uh, media hub that you go to, first of all, and everything is sort of taken care of there in terms of what your day is going to be, which stadiums you go into, because it's all travelable from that one spot. And then you sort of pitch out from there to the stadiums you go into for the games that you go into, and everything is almost within a village. So it's very, very similar to the Olympics in that regard. And yeah. therefore, the atmosphere is obviously very different as well. You know, in the stadium of the Olympics, maybe you're going to get good atmosphere and people for certain events are doing um, very, very, well, sorry, being very, very interested in it. But on a minute to minute basis, I, I don't really know anybody who walks around talking about the build up to the 100 meters semifinal second heat or something like that. You know, it's not not really the thing. So I feel like it's been a bit the same, at least for the European teams, less so for the Africans and South Americans, where the support does seem to have been largely excellent throughout. That's a really good shout, actually, that like if you consider Qatar as more city than country in terms of as a host and everything is in one area because the country is so small and everything's so easily traveled. And then when you consider that, you know, when a World Cup is traditionally on, it's in Brazil, they're flamboyant people. It's in South Africa, flamboyant people, Italy, France. These are flamboyant football mad people. The Qataris by nature are quite reserved, very humble, very respectful. So they're not going to be out screaming and shouting and dancing in the streets. There's also obviously the factor of the alcohol bans and whatever else are, are keeping people largely in hotels because they can drink there and they can't drink in certain other areas. And then the other big part of the population is made up by, you know, immigrants who've come there either for work or because they've got loads of money and they largely don't give a shit about football. So yeah, there is a few interesting factors. Uh, one thing I learned today is that they're actually dyeing the pitches. Mm. Um, they're dyeing them green to make them look more lush, which I wasn't aware of. But uh, Christ, I find that funny for whatever reason. Uh, but yeah, we will leave that there. What have you got coming out for the good people to read? Um, oh, God. Just go watch all the goals again. I think that'll be more fun this time. I'm going to watch... Argentina versus the Netherlands again tomorrow in its entirety and try to figure out what went on. And yes. I'm going to rewatch the Virgil Paredes thing 50 times before I go to bed tonight because that's the greatest moment in World Cup history as far as I'm concerned. The fact that he didn't get booked is amazing. Yeah, I mean, that that was almost, almost a red card itself. And like I said, there was at least three other potential red card moments um starting with that parade is nonsense anyway um anyway go watch the goals lisa marie says hi to you and guy in the background as well that's it from me cool well i have dragged this to almost an hour much to mr matchett's annoyance and uh <laughs> yeah it, it had to it, it deserved it the, to, today was a proper world cup day we saw one of the favourites getting eliminated on penalties by a country with less than 4 million people who just continually overperform at these major events. We saw one of the greats in Luka Modric extend his international career by one more game and he'll try and, ex well, it'll be by two more games because they'll get the third and fourth place playoff now regardless. 
We saw Leo Messi, I thought, put on largely a masterclass for 75 minutes before Argentina started to really shake on their stilts. And we saw chaos take over for the last 20 minutes of that game. Extra time was really tense. It was kind of horrible to get through. The penalties, Emmy Martinez, my hat is off, son. Two unbelievably good penalty saves. Not like some of the missed penalties we've seen in this competition. They were well-hit penalties. And you made two great saves. From a Liverpool point of view, I'm selfishly happy that Virgil comes home now and gets some lovely rest, as do Alisson and Fabinho. I think that's, from a Liverpool point of view, that's a good thing. Hopefully Henderson and Trent get to go home tomorrow as well, for no other reason than that they get to have some nice rest. And Ibu marches on, the lone red, potentially still at the World Cup. We will be talking to you after those games, England-France and Morocco-Portugal. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement, and we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.